0: I'm going to get the box out. Uh, It's under a few other boxes. And I keep it up here because um, I wouldn't want it to be in the basement where there could be a possibility of flooding and ruining my letters. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Okay, should we just reach? Now, these are all kind of miscellaneous. Um... Here's a postcard from, I can't tell what year. Hey, Max, how you doing? Lovely California is great. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, and audible missives from around the world. We curate as much great audio as we can find on the air, the web, made by pros and rookies alike, and then bring you the cream of the crop on ReSound. ReSound. <coughs> Oh, Gwen, there's so much news. First of all, I got a job, a real job, a job with dental insurance. I have every letter ever sent to me, every single one. Well, there was that one I burned quickly upon receiving, but that's a whole nother story. From the time I went off to summer camp in third grade till, well, now, I've collected them all in a big plastic bin and have kept careful track of them through a lot of moves and moods. Okay, little G, take care right soon. I miss you tons. Love me do, Holly. P.S. I got a letter from Bob. He says he loves law school. Isn't that swell? I'm so happy for him. What a shame he wasn't as mature together and well hung when I knew him. <laughs> Some people can't stand having those reminders around, but I would feel bereft without these snapshots of my life's past. Today on ReSound, letters to yourself, to your city, lost letters, found letters, and first, a love letter, two letters. Produced by our own Third Coast Artistic Director, Julie
1: Shapiro. Here's yours truly. Dear Julie, I really get such a charge at the sight of your strong and even and disciplined writing. I also enjoy the ideas, comments, and sentiments. You are really discovering for yourself the beauty and range of this wonderful land of ours, and now is the perfect time for you to do so.
2: If the letter is to be an answer to another, begin by getting out that other letter and reading it through, in order to refresh your memory as to what it is you have to answer, and as to your correspondent's present address, Next, put your own address in full at the top of the note sheet.
3: Lewis Carroll's eight or nine wise words about letter writing. I've always liked Sundays less for the simple fact they're postal holidays. Every other day of the week dawns with potential. Will I get to the post office to mail this package to the other side of the world? Will my own mailbox reveal any treasures? Every other day of the week honors this possibility. Every other day of the week could be a mail day. Every day, but Sunday.
2: Next, address and stamp the envelope. What? Before writing the letter? Most certainly. And I'll tell you what will happen if you don't. You will go on writing till the last moment, and just in the middle of the last sentence you will become aware that time's up. Then comes the hurried wind up, the wildly scrawled signature, the hastily fastened envelope which comes open in the post, the address a mere hieroglyphic, the frantic appeal to everyone in the house to lend you a stamp, the headlong rush to the post office, arriving hot and gasping, just after the box has closed. And finally, a week afterwards, the return of the letter from the dead letter office, marked Address illegible.
3: and I've always loved writing letters. I'm drawn to the ritual of letter writing, picturing the recipient in my mind, Susanna is long overdue, choosing the best stationery, from fancy store-bought to recycling bin scraps, selecting the perfect pen, black ink over blue, of course, finding a comfortable seat, preferably at a coffee shop with a steaming mug and piece of cake within reach, and loading up the ideal soundtrack, Instrumental, usually, like this solo piano record from Gonzalez. These are the customs that have kept me writing letters for decades, even as technology has forever transformed the way most of us communicate. And these are the traditions that introduced and then nourished a deep friendship with an amazing woman 65 years my senior, Lillian Hirsch, AKA my great
1: and great Aunt Lil. Your excuse for this trip, the collection of Halliday's clothing, set me laughing. Who needs an excuse? One just goes if one can. Isn't San Francisco a beautiful city? Wherever one looks, There's a view. So glad you're keeping the little gray cells moving.
3: There's a simple mathematical truth about letter writing. If you write letters, you get letters. So I decided years ago to write a lot of letters. Dozens of these letters were sent to Aunt Lil in Tucson, Arizona. Her responses followed me around America, faithfully arriving with my address either typed or handwritten, often with a pre-printed return address label decorated with a small illustration, birds or flowers or logos from various charity organizations she supported. I came to recognize these letters instantly, tucked in with the rest of the day's take, bills, coupons, and other worthless clutter. Aunt Lil's handwriting became as familiar as my own.
2: Next, put the date in full. It is another aggravating thing when you wish years afterwards to arrange a series of letters to find them dated Feb 17, Org 2, without any year to guide you as to which comes first, and never, never put Wednesday simply as the date.
3: My first letter from Aunt Lil arrived a few months after I attended Great Uncle Walter's funeral in Tucson in 1995. She and Walter had moved out west from Cleveland, Ohio, 15 years earlier, when he fell ill, and doctors recommended a drier, warmer climate. I didn't know either of them well at the time, but I was at university in Colorado, relatively close by. So I flew to Arizona for the service, and over the course of those few days, something clicked between me and Aunt Lil. We became pen pals soon after. She was 89, I was 23.
1: Hi, Julie. Walter's old portable Hermes manual typewriter, a relic from Switzerland, has a tendency to snarl up the ribbon, so you'll have to bear with my scribble. Loved your card and its sentiments. You really are so gung-ho. Thank you for the health and adventure wishes. The Walking Club starts again after the new year, and I do love it. We climbed King Canyon walls a month ago to see the petroglyphs left by the Indians. Very interesting. Our leader held my hand, and his wife pushed my rear to get up the stone walls. I'm the shortest, lightest, and oldest. Phooey, what a record. Our leader gave me a copy of his bronze Senior Olympics medal, complete with ribbon as a reward and acknowledgement of my spirit How about that? For the new year, health and joy and progress, and may all your wishes come true. A hug, a kiss, and much love, Aunt Lil.
2: The best subject to begin with is your friend's last letter. Write with the letter open before you. Answer his questions and make any remarks his letter suggests. Then go on to what you want to say yourself. This arrangement is more courteous and pleasanter for the reader than to fill the letter with your own invaluable remarks and then hastily answer your friend's questions in a postscript.
3: writing to Aunt Lil, certain correspondences have spanned years and sustained friendships that might have otherwise faded. John's letters, numbering over a hundred, have each arrived in a plain unadorned white envelope with my name and address spelled in all capitals and a simple return address from J. Tim's letters are colorfully decorated and often written on vintage hotel stationery. Amanda's letters find their way from a small island in the Honduras, Sometimes with extreme water damage, sometimes months after she's posted them. But still they arrive, when least expected, like broken clockwork.
2: Here is another golden rule to remember. Write legibly. The average temper of the human race would be perceptibly sweetened if everybody obeyed this rule. A great deal of the bad writing in the world comes simply from writing too quickly. Of course, you reply... I do it to save time. A very good object, no doubt. But what right have you to do it at your friend's expense? Isn't his time as valuable as yours?
3: There's a delicious unpredictability to the rhythm of a written correspondence. And while this may result in painfully long and inexplicable gaps in communication, then the drought passes and a well-endowed envelope falls through your mail slot to be discovered at the end of a long work day. All of that waiting pays off. As you reach for the letter, time stops. The universe comes to a rest. Other pressing needs evaporate as you make yourself comfortable and begin to read.
1: So you finally got to Chapel Hill. It's still one of my very favorite places, and I still regret that I couldn't convince my stubborn Walter to settle there. Yes, I love Tucson's sunny days, blue skies, and mountains but I really feel that I would have been happier living in Chapel Hill. Oh well, I certainly am not going to move. This is it, and here I stay until I leave with my toes turned up. Besides, my burial lot is next to Walter's, and I wouldn't leave him.
3: Of course letters are perfect vessels for communicating profound emotions or addressing sensitive situations but they're also great for describing the sunset that just tucked away, or how the peppers are taking over the garden, or what the cats ate for breakfast. Letters take time and concentration. Letters take effort, from tracking down an address to calculating postage, to actually remembering to send the thing. Letters are inconvenient, slow, and sometimes fail to convey what you hope they will. Or they may succeed in detailing exactly what you feared, And there the words sit in front of you, not going anywhere. The American author and sometimes musician Rick Moody has always favored communicating through letters. Moody was invited to contribute to an online writing magazine called Open Letters. He wrote about grieving over his sister's death. But Rick's open letter is not very obviously about his sister or losing someone close. Most of the letter describes his passion for feeding the birds in the yard of his small house on Fishers Island, New York.
4: So I go into the shed where there's an old beat-up garbage can containing a 50-pound bag of wild bird mix. The shed has my sister's old mountain bike in it and the lawnmower belonging to my friend Sylvester and a Weber barbecue I've never used. And I push these things aside And I find the highball glass that I use to funnel seed into the bird feeders. And I drag these things out onto the lawn, the bag of seed, the glass. And then I go get the two bird feeders. The first of these is easy to fill, but the second one takes some time because it'll take a fair amount of seed. And it's good that these things take such time. The repetition of household chores ennobles me, I believe. And when the feed is in the bird feeders, then the chickadees will descend, always first among local birds. The interesting thing about a chickadee is that he or she will always leave a perch after taking a single seed. They fly off to a nearby branch, eat the seed, and then return to the feeder one morsel at a time. They're the smallest of my birds, but the most impetuous. And it's only when they have demonstrated that the coast is clear that the other birds of my neighborhood will start to visit. The cardinals get interested when there's been a lot of spillage. Soon I see them rooting around in the underbrush and on the lawn. I think cardinals know nothing but the joy of being a cardinal. Maybe one autumn soon, I'll know that kind of joy, too. Best wishes for the holidays, etc. Rick.
3: Rick told me that his open letter was one of the most gratifying things he wrote about grief during this period, and he wrote a lot about it back then.
4: I don't know exactly why it was so helpful in the period of grieving to write this open letter, except that it was a letter. I mean, I wrote fiction on the subject, I wrote diaristic writings on the subject, but there was something about writing it in this letter form, even though it was a letter that was hybridized in the sense that it was public, that retained the intimacy that I associate with letter writing and writing about personal life, my personal life, to another person. So Whereas it might have been possible in Open Letters to feel just that the open part of the Open Letters was manifest and thus to feel thwarted about the intimacy of it, what was useful to me was despite its openness, the letter part of Open Letters was what engaged me. And so it became easy to write about these events, my sister, the loss of my sister, and um, to do it as though it were a very intimate personal letter and still have it be public.
2: say in your letter, I enclose cheque for five pounds, or I enclose John's letter for you to see. Leave off writing for a moment. Go and get the document referred to and put it into the envelope. Otherwise, you are pretty certain to find it lying about after the post has gone.
3: Letters are keepsakes and reminders and secrets and evidence. Letters are gestures inviting interaction and requesting attention back to the sender. One may get pinned to your bulletin board in plain sight where you see it daily. Another may rest in the deepest pocket of your wallet, not necessarily to be read, but to be carried with at all times. As my correspondence with Aunt Lil settled into a regular rhythm, we began to know each other better. I learned of her love for music and yoga and of her quick wit and feisty but playful nature, revealed through her written words.
1: I did mention carefully that marriage was a partnership and that if Anne did all the work in that large house, the least Ron could do was take care of the yard. I got a shrug of his shoulders. Don't ever hitch up with such a type. Marriage isn't worth becoming a doormat and I have 52 years of proof, so I speak from experience. Are you reading and listening, little darling? Being an aunt, I'm entitled to make aunt-like noises. It's only because I love you and care about you.
3: Over the years, I read often about the challenges and rewards of managing a life at her age, from her endless medical checkups to car repairs, from chaperoning her friends to discouraging birds from dirtying her balcony. I learned that Aunt Lil was lonely and missed Uncle Walter every day.
1: We had a day of clouds and one of rain, and you should see the gorgeous geraniums bordered by purple and white alyssum, Also the pansies with their smiling faces in two Mexican urns. The gardens front and back are really beautiful. Walter would have been so proud of me. I miss his approving pats and words. For a person losing a vital half, I'm really coping, I think.
3: And as our correspondence became important and eventually treasured during some of my own tumultuous years, I learned that she shared this feeling and found the same
1: solace and joy in my letters that I did in hers. Thank you for the note. It brought you here. No matter how far apart our letters, the tie that binds is not a thread, but a substantial rope.
3: It's true that technology has made it much more convenient to correspond with people far away, or for that matter, colleagues at the next desk over. But sending an email cannot hold a candle to dropping a letter into a mailbox, where it will sit in the dark until by some small miracle, it's collected and begins a journey to its assigned address. Clicking on an email simply doesn't compare with holding a letter in your hands. Slipping a finger underneath a sealed flap, gently ripping open the envelope, And extracting its contents. Emails are responded to within minutes, sometimes it seems before they're even sent. Letters take their own time, ripening as they travel between sender and recipient. No, I am not anti-email. I'm just very pro letter writing. So is Simon Roche founder of The Radio Post, a magazine project celebrating all things analogue and handmade.
5: Dear Julie, you ask me what I love about writing letters. Well, I guess the process itself is an addictive joy, getting the typewriter out of its box and finding the paper, lining it up and setting the margins, the clatter of the keys when you're in full flow, and all the manual clunkiness of said typewriter. But there's also the handwritten note, and I keep a special pen for this, a flat nib fountain pen with brown ink. The real pleasure, though, is in knowing that this very thing, these sheets of paper, the ink on them, the envelope you've licked and sealed, the airmail stamp you've put on crookedly, those exact things that form this package that you have just created will be in another part of the world in a number of days. For example, I wrote a letter to someone in Portland, Oregon last week. Now, I've never been there, but while writing, I was thinking, this piece of paper, this one-off little part of me, will be in Portland, Oregon in three or four days. I idly thought that if I send a hundred of these to Portland, maybe I'll just end up transferring myself there. Writer William Gibson once noted that when you travel by plane, your soul is always about a day behind. I feel that when you write letters, you kind of push a little piece of your soul out there in front of you, and you then have the promise of meeting it someday. You know when you're in a friend's house and you see a postcard stuck on their fridge that you sent to them while travelling? You think of the minute you wrote the letter, where you were, the cafe you were in perhaps. You think of them receiving it, then realise the two of you are standing there in the same room when you were once countries or continents apart, with this one unique item binding all those moments together. Letters are time machines. That's why people keep them safe in a box under the bed. Letters are very real witnesses to specific places in time, physically created in certain moments and unchanging, unlike memory which becomes quite soft focus over time. You can't get that with email. Once something turns to ones and zeros, at some point it has lost that human bind and its uniqueness. Letters never change from what they were. They never switch from Times New Roman to Comic Sans en route. With all their imperfections, messy handwriting and random coffee stains, letters are not a collection of words, but an artefact of one moment, in a certain place, at a certain time. Warmest regards from a chilly Copenhagen, Simon.
3: Letters written are snapshots of how we live our lives or how we choose to tell someone we're living our lives. Letters received are mirrors, revealing what has been shared. Reading back over Aunt Lil's letters, through her responses to mine, I tracked a wandering, unsettled period of my life where I moved around a lot, tried on different jobs and relationships, searching for something I couldn't identify or articulate. Writing back, she was always encouraging and curious and pleased to hear of my adventures. This meant the world to me at the time as each letter arrived. It means even more to me now as I look back and realize how supportive she was of my untethered existence, how much she believed in my decisions and trusted I'd figure things out for myself. I so wish I could have shared the past decade of my life with Aunt Lil. I would have written to her about that first date at the aquarium with the man I'm now married to and described my professional travels in Europe and Africa and Russia. I would describe the gelato shop that opened in our neighborhood with all of those crazy flavors. I would ask how her typewriter's holding up.
2: If doubtful whether to end with yours faithfully, or yours truly, or yours most truly, etc, there are at least a dozen varieties before you reach yours affectionately, refer to your correspondent's last letter and make your winding up at least as friendly as his. In fact, even if a shade more friendly, it will do no harm.
3: Aunt Lil's last letter arrived in December 2002. It was a card with a pre-printed message expressing a wish for peace on earth on the right-hand side, prefaced with dear family and signed, much love, Aunt Lil. On the left side, she'd written a short note.
1: It's so good to hear from you and that all is well. I'm sure that Chicago is all the richer for you. The reference is to the humans, not the animals. This place tries very hard to continue the ambiance of a home and we all appreciate it. We took turns turning on Hanukkah bulbs, candles or no-nos, and saying prayers, singing songs and twirling dreidels. Have a wonderful holiday and a joyful new year.
3: Looking at the card now, nine years later, It's clear Aunt Lil's health was declining. Her handwriting is frailer, more tentative, and the words don't quite add up. Something's missing. She died just one month later. Holding this last letter, I'm struck by how connected I still feel to this woman, by how I can so vividly picture her watering her flowers and can conjure her voice in my head as if we just chatted recently. The letters bring it all back.
2: Postscript is a very useful invention, but it is not meant, as so many ladies suppose, to contain the real gist of the letter. It serves rather to throw into the shade any little matter we do not wish to make a fuss about.
3: P.S. Letters are simply rare and wondrous and singular things. These days, people mourn the lost art of letter writing all too often. Frankly, I don't buy it. To all of you who get that faraway look in your eyes as your voice drops and you admit wistfully, I used to write letters, I say you still can. It's uncertain for how much longer this will hold true, but for now it's a sure bet. You can still write letters. To that end, I'll leave off with a call to pens. A call to turn away from your computer, choose a lucky recipient, sit down, and write a letter. Let the ink spill. Let your thoughts wander. Don't think too hard about it, and don't wait for the spell check. Don't forget to ask a few questions, and don't fret if your lines fall crooked onto the page. When you're finished, find something extra to insert, a recent photograph or menu from your favorite bakery, anything that helps describe your life in some way. Seal the envelope, address it legibly, don't forget the stamp and walk to the nearest mailbox. Drop it into the slot and I promise, you'll receive a letter back soon.
1: Kiss, and much love. Aunt Lil.
0: Yours truly. Written and presented by Julie Shapiro and produced by Alan Hall of Falling Tree Productions for the BBC Radio 4 program, Something Understood. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today, we celebrate the letter. Why not write one yourself? Questions, comments, rants, or raves can be mailed to Third Coast, 848 East Grand Avenue, Chicago, Illinois, 60611 or if you must, you can always send an email to resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. The post office, this is the
3: place, the place to bring your letters and packages to be sent
6: by air
1: or by train or truck to anywhere you
3: want, where it is then delivered to anyone you want.
0: The legendary Hope Diamond, one of the most famous gems in the world, is estimated to be worth about $250 million. Yet in 1958, it was sent from New York City in a box wrapped in brown paper through the U.S. Postal Service to its permanent home at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. No armored trucks, no armed guards, no briefcases, handcuffed to Secret Service agents wearing earpieces and Ray-Bans. That would have drawn attention. That would have attracted thieves. No, the Hope Diamond arrived safe and sound. And it just goes to show how much trust people put in the postal service. But every once in a while, even they lose something. And that's where our next story starts. Once
7: upon a time, I lost something in the mail. Maybe this has happened to you. It probably has happened to you. But what makes my story different is that I went looking for what I lost.
8: So you didn't come his 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 body.
7: And the place I ended up was so strange, so
8: dreamlike. The box name is John Smith.
7: But let me back up a bit. It was 2007, August. I was moving from Minnesota to Michigan to start grad school. I packed whatever couldn't fit into my station wagon into three cardboard boxes and shipped them parcel rate, books mostly. The first box arrived at the leisurely pace the books shipped parcel rate usually do. And then I waited for weeks. The second box never showed, though when I say that it never showed, I mean that most of the box never showed a piece of it eventually did arrive. It came in a large envelope, a neat rectangle of cardboard, the box top where I had written my address. Someone had taken a razor and very carefully sliced it off the box. An enclosed note on postal service letterhead informed me that my address label had become detached from my box. And so I was thrilled when I came home one day, months later, and found my third box waiting for me on my doorstep. My lost box was here. But something about the box was different. It had been torn apart and then lashed back together with plastic zip ties. When I cut it open, the cookbooks I had carefully packed were in disarray. My four-inch-thick hardcover Joy of Cooking had been torn apart down the spine, like a weightlifter had used it for some feat of strength. The two halves were sandwiched around a cookbook I had never seen before, someone else's copy of Sophia Loren's Recipes and Memories. Sophia leered at me from the cover. Her cleavage was distracting. I was perplexed. I told my mother about it. Oh, yes, she said, that's happened to me too. She had shipped a box of books home from Europe, and when she opened it, this this box box was filled with with other people's people's things, things, all all from from
6: different different countries. countries. It had a Bible that was in Russian, a magazine, From, I think, Germany, it had some candy from the Netherlands.
7: So it was like everyone's (laughs) European vacation was in your box? Well, I, I was just astounded. My friend Helen had mailed some boxes, and she had a story too.
3: When I got the boxes open, they looked like they had been put in a washing machine and then dried. Like the boxes were so mutilated. And when I opened them, the box with all the food magazines... Half of the issues were taken out. The rest of the boxes were all cookbook boxes, all like vintage cookbooks. And in place of that, they had put all of these Southern home, Southern home living, whatever, cookbooks from the 1980s in the boxes, (laughs) deviled eggs on the cover, as though that was like a reparation for my loss.
7: Helen and my mom shrugged this off and they let things go, but it nagged at me. Who was reading my books? Whose copy of Recipes and Memories was guiding me through tiramisu? And just who had switched them? Now if you ask enough questions like that, you'll find yourself in Atlanta, on a day so hot the pavement shimmers, driving past the Coca-Cola Museum, past the world's largest aquarium, past the CNN headquarters, and finally turning down a service road and pulling up in front of a nondescript suburban warehouse directly across from Six Flags Amusement Park the mail recovery center where lost mail goes to be sorted processed and sent back to its rightful owner or barring that it's sold off i walked up to the door of the warehouse and opened it on
6: ipod and accessories opening bid five hundred dollars an auction six seven eight nine solar power 151
7: 200 people lined up in folding chairs, waving paddles in the air.
9: There's no live ammo, there's
10: no live weapons.
7: No and in the back, bins upon bins, hundreds of bins of lost mail. Everything that Americans have ever stuffed into a mailbox and never seen again, all sorted by type. Bins of pillows, bins of tennis rackets, bins of coffee makers, bins of stuffed animals, computers, Bibles, electric guitars. Bins of stuff you can't imagine anyone ever thought it was a good idea to mail. Bins of stuff you didn't know it was possible to mail, like tractor-trailer tires. And all these bins being auctioned off by officials of the U.S. Postal Service. A middle-aged man sporting faded jeans, a sweat-stained baseball cap, and a handlebar mustache came up behind me, jabbing at an auction list. He was a buyer. My name's Ricky, and he was here with his wife Cindy.
8: I mean, they have got some stuff in here that's irreplaceable, like they got some vintage stuff in here from the 40s and the 50s. They've got one in there that's got a, a Life magazine with John F. Kennedy on it. You now, how much is that worth to somebody? If it to you, it wouldn't be worth nothing. To me, I can remember the day he got killed. You know, and so you
0: got the uh, buttons. Kennedy for president, some of I'm those. I not remember the
8: elections. So, you know, it was just according to who you are and how much it's worth to you. So you've got uh, apparel, accessories, clothes, Starting and bid, $500. Cameras and accessories, Starting bid, $2,000. Mm-hmm. Ethnic items, $500. What do you
7: think an ethnic item is? I don't
8: know. So what do you do with all this stuff? I'll go to resell everything we get. That's what this thing's about. There'll be people sitting out in their parking lot on eBay before they leave here. You're
10: kidding. Look I'm not in their kidding. cars.
8: In their cars. They've got buyers waiting.
7: Ricky and Cindy were hoping to get lucky today, as lucky as they got once almost a decade ago, right after September
8: 11th. We've got a whole tote of American flags. You could not buy American flags nowhere in the United States, everything was gone. We ended up with American flag pins, American flags, everything. E-ring earrings. We had five boxes of McDonald's little arches with the American flag on it. McDonald's didn't even have them. So we we come out smelling like a rose on that one.
7: And just then, Gordon Clement swept out from behind the wheel of a baby blue 1960 Cadillac. Heads turned. People whispered. Mr. Gordon was Male Recovery Center royalty. He was 80 years old, with a pink face, white hair, bright blue eyes. I swear he even twinkled. He didn't seem surprised when he saw my microphone. It was almost like he was expecting me.
10: Brooklyn, New York? Yeah. Is that where you're from?
7: Yeah.
8: You come all the way down here from Brooklyn, New York?
7: Sort of. I've been on a road trip for the past month.
8: Oh. So. So you didn't come here specifically to find out about the pot? Wait, the pot? Yeah,
2: I was on Jay Leno's uh, last Tuesday night.
7: Of course he was. Mr. Gordon had been buying stuff here for 10 years. He'd take his bins home, unpack them, and resell the contents. At the last Mail Recovery Center auction, he had bought a bin of paintings. One of them was especially pretty, an orchid in a vase. He tried to resell it at a different auction for $25, but no one was biting.
8: So, they put it back on my truck. And as they put it back on the truck, they tipped it and felt something inside the box moving. The frame was a box itself. So one of the guys helping me took a screwdriver and took the back off of it. And inside was $5,000 worth of marijuana.
7: Mr. Gordon and I sat and thought about what kind of person would send $5,000 worth of pot through the mail. And how that person must have felt when they heard about Mr. Gordon on Lino, and whether they filed a claim for the painting, or whether they were just relieved that the post office had lost it so absolutely that it couldn't be traced back to its original sender. And then Mr. Gordon headed to the floor to bid. But first, he looked deep into my eyes and he sang me a song for luck.
10: Solamente una vez.
7: In addition to being a male Recovery Center celebrity, he also sings mariachi at a restaurant in
10: Alpharetta, Georgia. In English, you belong to my heart now and forever.
7: And into this reverie walked Lionel Snow, the director of the center, and Michael Miles, Postal Service representative. Who escorted me out the door? Go outside. oh, we have to, go outside? Yeah, have to go outside. Told me I was violating postal service policy. Can you just tell me why? Sure.
8: Mm-hmm. Postal policy. This is postal policy. Yeah, but why? Mm-hmm. Do you know why? <laughs> Wait.
7: So I have to be. I have to be like 50 feet from the center. And led me across the parking lot.
8: Is what we would we would clearly be prepared to talk to you about. I thought you were going to walk around in here, kind of get the ladle and see what's... What, but however, whatever kind of documentation that you're trying to do inside, that's where we run into a problem. Okay,
7: is it a security issue? Is it's,
8: it's security, It's a, that's that's among other issues, but yes, yeah, security certainly is one of them. Is
7: yeah. it because of, you know, people's stuff is in there and they don't want to document Not it? only that,
8: that's, that's not the, the critical issue. The critical issue? Yeah, the critical I issue is it. something I don't won't be disgusting. I mean, there's things that they've been there from the early 50s. There's body parts, possibly ashes and stuff that's been there for years. We, we would like to get things back to customers, everything, but uh, there's some that we're unable to.
7: This sounded, well, to be honest, it sounded troubling, because if the Postal Service could accidentally sell $5,000 worth of marijuana to Gordon Clement, didn't that mean that they could accidentally auction off those human remains? Um. Ashes. Yeah. Said a small woman in acid washed yeah, jeans stories. with frazzled yeah. hair standing behind me. Her name was Jill. One part lady I know bought dishes and it had grey powder all over it. And when she finished unloading her dishes there was a all the paraphernalia for somebody's, you know, memorial. It was actually somebody's ashes. So that was funny. Wait, it was it was someone's ashes. Yes. On her so, plates? Yes, all over and because it was in the bottom. I wandered around the back of the building where postal officials were unloading bins with a forklift. Auction winners were queued up, waiting to collect their purchases. One buyer was hanging to the
4: side. What's your name? Um, my name is John Smith.
7: I'm pretty sure that wasn't actually his real name. (laughs) Great. John came to the auction a lot, he said, and he specialized in buying books. He might have bought my books once upon a time, jumbled up with thousands of others. He sympathized with my loss. He knew what it felt like, he said. It had happened to him. Yeah, let me tell you a really funny story. We shipped a case of books one time to us. We bought books, and um, we got the same box taped up. It looked like it had been through the through a tornado. And inside it was a bunch of screwdrivers and pliers. There was tools inside the same box. Nothing was said. Just. Here you go here's your package and they just replaced it with the same weight i guess with screwdrivers and hammers and stuff but
8: my books were gone
7: did you ask them what happened to it?
8: they just what i don't know got lost in the mail i guess poor man can't buy nothing in there today the
7: auction was still going on inside but ricky and cindy that couple who had bought that bin of american flags back in the day they were leaving empty-handed
8: People's crazy it's it's, it
0: must be the rich people
8: today (laughs) oh people haven't got no sense in there today some woman paid fifty dollars for a box of vhs tapes what do you do with vhs tapes i thought people was having money problems i mean not here there's (laughs) nobody here got money problems today because i'm leaving i mean i ain't nothing i can touch that i wanted so I'm going back home. We're going to go find lunch. First of all, we're going, yeah, we're going to go find lunch, then we're going home.
7: I watched Ricky and Cindy drive away. I was hot, sweaty, almost in a daze, longing for home. But before I left, I turned and stood for a moment, and I watched the river of other people's things pouring out of the loading docks and into trucks and moving vans. Those clothes you shipped home from college and never saw again. That fancy perfume your grandmother swore up and down she sent you for your birthday. The model Eiffel Tower that your dad says he airmailed you from Paris. Your complete set of Southern living cookbooks, the ones with the deviled eggs on the cover. All those things that you thought were lost forever, they're all here. They're all in Atlanta, across from Six Flags Amusement Park. And they're all going home with someone else. Whoa, Whoa! And then there was nothing left to do but get in my car and drive home. And when I got home, I made eggplant parmesan. You can find a good recipe for it on page 153 of Sophia Loren's Recipes and
0: Memories. Something Lost, Something Found was produced by Samara Freemark and first aired on KCRW's Unfictional.
9: Dear Rachel, here I am in 1990, and there I am in 2008. These are the things I hope I am doing. I would probably be a nurse, an artist, or an ordinary housewife. I think I might be married.
0: I definitely would not be a lawyer. So you can send a letter through the mail, but what if you could send one back in time? What would you write to your younger self? Dear me of your. worrying will get you nowhere. Action is better. Go everywhere you're invited and ask everyone out who you like. Rejection is just material for later. And lastly, no one cares what you weigh. P.S. Lose the perm. Obviously, writing to our past selves is still impossible, but there are ways to write to our future selves. And that's what this next story is all about.
9: My name is Galia, and um, I just turned 30. I am very future-oriented. I'm always just dreaming up possibilities. Like even when I'm in a relationship, you know, I'm already putting like the cat and the dog, and you know, (laughs) what pets are we gonna have? I was just browsing the web, and there was a link that said you can email yourself in the future. So I clicked on that link, and there was futureme.org. And I love what this website does, it allows you to email yourself in the near future or the very far future. So in the future you get this glimpse of who you used to be, and in the present you get to remind yourself of the things that you don't want to forget. And and so I I wrote uh, a few letters to myself. I also read some of the letters there, and
6: some of them were just very heartwarming. Dear future me, I hope I'm still with David because I'm going to get his name tattooed today. So if I'm not, I'm probably laughing when I read this. Sincerely, me.
2: Dear future me, happy 18th birthday. If you have a single drop of alcohol, you'll hate yourself forever. Remember dad, remember his drinking how it made you feel, the things he said, the things he did, don't ever be him. Remember promising yourself you'd never touch a drop, you'd never be like him, you'd never hurt anyone the way that he hurt you, how messed up he's made you. Follow through, don't drink, don't drink, don't drink, don't you dare drink, Hopeful. Teenage you.
9: So I am in my inbox right now. And, um, okay, well, there's the email. Clicking on my inbox under new mail. And there it is. It's uh, addressed from futureme.org. And the subject is, don't forget. (laughs) All right, so the first line is actually from Future Me. And it's saying, this is an email from the past. And it tells me when it was composed, which is actually March 28th of 2008. And um, I am due to open it, well, right now, in August 11th, 2008. Okay, it's a little emotional, because I guess I know what it is now. Um, And he says, he was deployed three months ago. And he says, remember, he's a good man. He knows your quirks and he doesn't judge you. He sends you love letters and roses for no reason. He loves you dearly and makes sure to let you know that every day. When your tone of voice changes, he makes sure that you're okay. He He asks, even though you tell him you're okay. He admires who you are. He even watches chick flicks with you. Right here, right now, you love him. Right here, right now. You're about to start to cry. (laughs) Well, I already started. Um, Because he's leaving to fight the war. He's leaving because he has to. Not because he doesn't love you. He needs your support. He's in a war zone. He needs for you to remember how much you loved him before he left and to keep the love alive until he comes back. Wait for him. You know he's worth it. that's the end. (laughs) I just... I mean, it's true. I I feel the way that I think I felt when I, when I wrote that email, um, I remember I started to cry when I wrote that email and I was just so afraid that the time was going to do something to our relationship and that I was going to forget, so that's why I wrote myself that email, it's a reminder of love.
6: Dear future me, I hope that this is an unnecessary message, I hope that things have worked themselves out by the time you read this, but I have to admit, I'm not that hopeful. If he's still being selfish, if he's still thinking of himself before anyone else, if he's still sitting on his arse on the sofa with a beer and a video game, then it's time to do something about it. You deserve better. Right now, I'm trying to give him space and let him find whatever it is he's lost. I pray that he's found it by the time this hits your inbox. If he hasn't, then I tell you this. Today, December the 23rd, 2005, is the day that you decided that love may not be enough. And you decided to give him some time and to try and help him whatever way you can. But if it doesn't work, if he doesn't wake up, if he isn't the person you fell in love with, well, then... It's time to end it. In ten years, you don't want to be looking back and thinking what a waste it all was. Me.
0: That was an excerpt from Letters to Myself. It was produced by Sandhya Suri and included extracts from the Future Me website read by Kevin Eldon and Radhika Anakpi. It was a Falling Tree production for BBC Radio 4.
10: Now, try to imagine what you want your letter to look like. Look at the page. See what should go on it. First, you'll want
9: your address and the date, of course. Then the salutation and the main part of the
4: letter. And finally, the complimentary clothes and your signature.
0: A letter doesn't always have to be to a person. It can be to a place or a thing, animal, vegetable, or mineral public radio program State of the Reunion travels to a different city or region every week, and at the end of the show features a letter that someone has written to that place. Now that might sound odd, but personifying something can help you communicate more intimately, as you'll hear in this next letter.
11: Dear Eastern Kentucky, four years ago I got my only tattoo, a red bird on my right shoulder blade. It was no coincidence that I chose the cardinal as my talisman. It symbolizes our mountains, and I wear it with pride. For I have been marked by these crags, by the muddy waters of the Cumberland, by mammals who cleaned homes for a dollar a day, by parents who rolled pennies to attend college, by churches and schools and soup beans and cornbread. I have held your heritage close to my chest, and I carry it on my tongue when I speak. When I lived outside your borders for nearly six years, I was occasionally profiled by my accent. Some found it charming, while others scoffed, thinking it a mark of illiteracy and ignorance. I defended you in these moments, testifying about our rich literary heritage and the hard-working, good-hearted people and our hollers. But here, back home in these mountains, I find myself being judged. I am a gay Appalachian child of God, your son. I have always claimed you as my own, now you must claim me. I know your history of the live and let live tradition that once existed here. Your first settlers fostered that philosophy in their quest for land, privacy, and above all independence, the freedom to live their lives as they saw fit. Those values are scarce today. My heart grows sick when preachers use the words degenerate and reprobate. My heart grows sick when shoppers stare in the aisles of the Dollar General. My heart grows sick when parents throw their hands in the air and say, I'm through with you. If God is indeed a Kentuckian, as William Faulkner wrote, surely he must mourn for our region, for the hate that fills our hollers but he must also rejoice in seeing groups like the Berea College Gay-Straight Alliance, which promotes love and acceptance and service. Yes, Eastern Kentucky, I have been marked by you. I carry your tattoo on my back, your accent on my tongue, your mountains in my soul, and your scars on my heart. Your loving son, Jason Howard.
0: That letter to Eastern Kentucky was written by Jason Howard and produced by Tina Antolini for the NPR program State of the Reunion. P.S. We hope we've inspired you to put pen to paper and write a fabulous letter to someone or something you care about. And if you want to send one to us, we promise we'll write you back in a letter, handwritten, with a stamp, and everything. Make us work. Write to us at Third Coast, 848 East Grand Avenue, Chicago, Illinois, 60611.
5: Letters are time machines. That's why people keep them safe in a box under the bed. Letters are very real witnesses to specific places in time, physically created in certain moments, and unchanging, unlike memory, which becomes quite soft focus over time.
0: This is a, like, seven-page letter and written letter to a good friend of mine from high school. I'm excited to death, and I feel like now is the time, and this is the place to fight and hopefully win over some of these personal problems and issues. So young and inspired. <laughs> ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxai. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. ReSound's intern is Danielle Izell. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Drehouse Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Boeing Company Charitable Trust, the Agadino Foundation, Chicago's Navy Pier, American Airlines, and the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to the many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. This is a box just of letters from someone who shall go unnamed. Since he's now an elected representative. Okay, so that's one guy.